0: Girls5Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories.
1: This episode is brought
0: to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing, whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here
1: and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 475th episode of The Hollywood Reporter's Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the world's greatest living novelists, who is also a newly Oscar-nominated screenwriter as well for his adaptation of Akira Kurosawa's 1952 film Ikiru into the script for Oliver Harmonis' 2022 film Living, Kazuo Ishiguro. A Japanese-born Brit, Ishiguro has written eight novels over the last 41 years, which have collectively sold more than 2.5 million copies in the U.S. alone. Most notably, 1989's The Remains of the Day, which was awarded the prestigious Booker Prize, and 2005's Never Let Me Go which Time Magazine chose as one of the 100 greatest English-language novels since 1923, and which the Los Angeles Times described as, quote, "...probably thus far the most important English-language novel of the new century." Both of those titles were adapted by others into highly acclaimed films. In recognition of Ishiguro's collective body of work, he was chosen as the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature for 2017, Just a year after one of his heroes, Bob Dylan, was tapped for the same honor, making him only its 29th recipient for work in the English language. His Nobel citation declared that he, quote, in novels of great emotional force, has uncovered the abyss beneath our illusory sense of connection with the world, close quote. The New York Times, meanwhile, has called him a blue chip literary stock. One of the most acclaimed and influential British writers of his generation, and a writer who takes enormous gambles, then uses his superior gifts to manage the risk as tightly as possible, while also heralding his pared-down pintoresque prose, his masterful narrative control, and his virtuosic use of understatement and elision. And the Los Angeles Times has described him as that rarest of creatures, a literary craftsman who also sells books, while asserting that few writers who've ever lived have been able to create moods of transience, loss, and existential self-doubt, as Ishiguro has. A contemporary of Martin Amis, Ian McEwen, and Salman Rushdie, who is the favorite working writer of many of his peers, including Haruki Murakami, Ishiguro was also the recipient of the Order of the British Empire in 1990, the French Order of Arts and Letters in 1998, The Library Lion Medal from the New York Public Library in 2014, and A British Knighthood for Services to Literature in 2018. Over the course of our conversation, the 68-year-old and I discussed his journey from Japan to England and from songwriting to fiction writing, what inspired his best-known novels, and why he thinks he has so often written characters who deceive themselves and repress their emotions from the Butler Stevens and the Remains of the Day through the bureaucrat Williams in Living why he was so impacted by Akiru as a boy and so excited to adapt it as a man, and why he now says of his completed script that he's as proud of this as anything I've ever done, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Shiguro, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Again, honored to have you with us. And uh, on this podcast, we always begin with sort of the same question asking our our guests where he or she was born and raised and what their folks did for a living but in in your case I think it's maybe more related to the things that have followed and and your work uh than than most can you share if anyone's living under a rock who's listening just uh your story of where you're from and how you came to live where you live
1: yeah um I'm sure most people don't know actually um no I i I was born in Nagasaki, Japan, in 1954, um, and I'd spent the first five years of my life there in a in a very traditional kind of Japanese setup because um, it was my grandfather's home. My grandfather had lived in Shanghai a lot of his life, and so when he returned to Japan, he wanted it to be more Japanese than the than the Japanese. You know, so it was it was like a a throwback Japanese existence. You know, like straight out of an early no, 1930s Aussie movie. It was, it was exactly like that. Uh, um, my father was a scientist. Uh, he worked a little while in, in the United States and in, in Britain. And so when I was five, he was asked to do some research for the British government. And we all moved to to the United Kingdom, in, in to, to England. And, um, and the idea was that, you know, the family, that's to say, my parents, myself and my sister, we would live in England for maybe a year or two years you know, while he was doing this research, but we never went back. And my, you know, my, my parents uh, lived their entire lives in Britain, uh, as I have done. And so that was a kind of a strange situation. We, weren't, we never adopted the attitude of migrants. You know, um, we just thought we were visiting. It was a very different culture um the connections between japan and and the west were not as as ubiquitous as they are today you know it, it it everything was very foreign and and we seemed very foreign um and there was always always the assumption that i would uh, return to japan and grow up in japan and spend my adult life in japan so it, it was a strange kind of dislocated experience growing up in that situation where i was observing british society from the inside, as a as a schoolboy, you know, with English friends and so on. But f- through my parents' eyes, it was very much like observing a foreign society. You know, with, with kind of affectionate, you know, as an affectionate. Um, a viewpoint, I would say. My parents had. But you know, they definitely they're looking at kind of these strange um, foreign Western people and their weird customs. <laughs> and the English were weird then, I tell you. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> well, and I know it all kind of comes full circle. We'll, we'll come to, of course, living, how some of that may echo things that you witnessed growing up in, in England. But I, I do wonder, you know, a lot of people, because you're first to novels were set in Japan and then you of course shifted to England with with uh, Remains of the Day and I I just wonder though there's been a, a projection onto your work I think by a lot of people that you know th- people characters caught between two worlds things like that did you feel yourself ever what did it, it sounds like you, from what I've read in prepping for this fairly extensively that you had a pretty happy Childhood, and were not, uh, and did not go back to Japan until after you'd already uh, begun to achieve success as a novelist. So I, I guess was there actually a feeling of being caught between two worlds for you, or is that people projecting that onto you?
1: I don't think i I wasn't very conscious of of the kind of the kind of what what today would be called an identity crisis about ethnicity, and this was because. I, you know, I didn't belong to any kind of minority community in England. You know, we were the only ones. Um, And also, from the point of view of the English, they didn't have like a set reaction or response yet to foreigners living in their midst. Um, I would say by the time I was about 15, 16, that all changed. You know, there were these large waves of immigration from both the Caribbean and and from South Asia. Uh, People from India, Pakistan, basically the old colonial places. And uh, the whole idea of immigration into Britain, that became a big social issue. Uh, The climate changed. Um, But by then I had kind of more or less grown up. And when I was growing up, people didn't have a stock response uh, to a foreigner. And so... I learned very quickly that you had to actually you you had to actually kind of make your difference an advantage rather than a disadvantage you You had just a few seconds when you met somebody to to make turn yourself into something very interesting and exciting, maybe even slightly scary if you right. wanted to scare people and said you know so when I was like Seven years old, I pretended to be a judo expert. <laughs> there are times when that was convenient, you know, right, right. And, and, you know, bigger kids would back off. <laughs> um, you, know, you you could do all kinds of things. So, um, but I knew that I, I was—you know—people look at me, and I would only have a small amount of time to establish some sort of relationship with them. I couldn't be neutral to them, you know. And it was the same when I went to school or changed school. Yeah, you know, and by and large, I came out of that pretty well. You know, I I learned to do a kind of an act very quickly and and uh, be a popular kid rather than than a scapegoat or, or someone who gets bullied. Yeah,
0: you know. I, I read a, uh, that you were not as a child necessarily a big reader, but that the one thing that really captured your imagination was the the Sherlock Holmes stories, and that that in itself, people I guess when you were. Imitating that, people thought, "Oh, this is, this effect must it must just be a Japanese thing, right?"
1: <laughs> well, you've got to understand, Sherlock Holmes was big in Japan. Uh, I, I I was having Sherlock Holmes stories read to me by my mother in Japanese when I was still in Japan. And and they scare the shit out of me. <laughs> I, I tell you, you know, <laughs> and they are very scary stories. The Speckled yeah. Band, you know. I mean, is, is that is that is that a nice thing to read to a to a child <laughs> you, before they go to bed? You know, about you know maybe there'll be a snake coming down the bell rope while you're asleep to poison, <laughs> you know, to bite you. I mean, it, it really frightened me. But I became obsessed with the Sherlock Holmes stories. You know, when I was still pretty young, you know, ten years old, eleven years old. And oddly enough, I think it was the kind of the coziness um, of the Sherlock Holmes stories the friendship between Holmes and Watson I mean they're, they're a peculiar mixture of you know, a hostile world out there and a very cozy world of friendship and and these kind of like almost like student rooms that they have in Baker Street um, the cozy relationship with the with the police officers and um, and so th- that really appealed to me. And so that was my, that was an early introduction, if you like, into the, into some kind of literary fictional world. But most of my time I watched um, uh, TV westerns. Right and, right. and, and I, that, that, that was really my, My my introduction to the fictional universes was was uh, these uh, TV series that were very popular in those days, like Wagon Train and Bonanza. You know, sure, uh, Laramie, and these were very important to me. And in fact, I learned a lot of my English because, you know, our family we didn't speak English when we arrived. You know, so I learned a lot of English, not so much just at school, but from watching watching these um, westerns. And so you can imagine. How some of my uh, English went down at school, you know, when I'd turn <laughs> up and say "Howdy," <laughs> and I would say "Sure" rather than "Yes," uh, uh, and this is like you know, early nineteen sixties Southern Eng- England, home counties, you know. That's great. Um, but yeah, I, I learned a lot from from those uh, things like Bronco and uh, you know, series <laughs> like that. You're probably way too young to. to no, watch but such I,
0: I, I I do uh, <laughs> I I do know about them, and I I think that's an amazing. Uh, you know, fact that that's an influence, but also that here's the thing that really blew my mind learning about you a, a bit before this was that if you could have had your way at, let's say, 15, you mentioned was an age when maybe more people from outside of England who did not look like the majority of people there were coming around you. If you could have had your way to do anything in your life, it would not have been to be a novelist, right? What were you, what was your dream?
1: Well, around then I I started to play guitar and 15 was when I first started to write songs. Um, And so my dream then was to, was to be a singer songwriter, which was the big thing that was going down in the 1970s. And so Bob Dylan was a hero. Leonard Cohen was a hero. uh, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, uh, people like that. But, um, you know, I, I kind of, I, I quickly became aware that, you know, they were very American, uh, or North American, I should say, at least, you know. Um, and I, uh, even back then, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted an identity for, for myself, you know. So uh, I, I was trying to, I was trying to kind of write songs about sort of rainy English motorways, as opposed to kind of dusty highways, you know, in the (laughs) United States. Uh, You know, English fog and and mist and and miserable pubs, you know. Uh, I I wanted to do a a version of what they did, except in an English way. But you see, Scott, the important thing for me, I think, all along, um, you know, my love of Sherlock Holmes, my love of books, my love of film, uh, my songs. You know, I I don't, my, my impulse towards, artistic activity it wasn't essentially autobiographical um i think i was always trying to maybe escape you know but but always trying to find myself in some kind of fictional universe and and i wanted to create my own fictional universes you know this is a really important thing for me um and, and so I, I never, I've never had this impulse to, to say, you know, I, I want to put a hunk of my life into fiction and, and present it to you. You know, I, I still don't have that, have that. But I've always had this longing, you know, I see a kind of a imaginary world somewhere beyond my, my own, uh, kind of, my own imagination at the moment. And I'm, I really want to reach for it and trying to put it into shape you know bring it into my view and create it and furnish it and map it out you know uh it's always been that impulse and so i think songs you see i mean it, 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 back then it, it seemed like a kind of a an expedited way to do this you know just in two and a half minutes three minutes you create an entire kind of universe in a song you can you know you, you you go there when you just listen to a song whether it's by Dylan or by Chuck Berry or whoever you know it can just plunge you into into an entirely different place emotionally visually everything and i i think that's what really appealed to me about songs that you can just just go there wham like
0: that and also though i it seems like maybe one of the benefits of your experience with songwriting is a style that continued into your novel writing i mean one of the things that is often remarked upon is you're not a flowery writer. You're not showing off your vocabulary. You're very economical. Sometimes I think it's, it's, uh, very brief ideas. You're not showing off. And it seems like that may come from writing lyrics, right?
1: Well, yeah, I I think in my case, that that, that's how I evolved. I mean, but I, I tell you when I, when I first started to write songs I was showing off you know <laughs> I mean it was all i mean the lyrics and and the music you yeah. know everything I learned to do technically uh, you know, i I had to put it in a song so so I went through these kind of purple prose kind of you know stream of consciousness consciousness lyrics and you know lots of kind of jazz chords thrashing around everywhere you know um but I, I kind of got that out of my system and um you know when i t- towards the end of my a totally unsuccessful songwriting career in my early 20s, my songs are very similar to my fiction writing style. And, and I guess you would say my screenplay writing mm-hmm. style as well. Things are very pared down. The meanings and the emotions tend to be below the surface. And I think one of the things about a so- in a song, you had to be very economical. You know, you, you haven't got time. Um, and the other thing about, I think the other important thing, lesson I learned about, writing songs. If you're writing a song, a very important priority is that the song lingers in the minds of the people who hear it. You're not just entertaining them for the three minutes when the song is, is happening in front of them. The whole point is that you have to haunt them. And if the song is going to work well, it's going to, it's going to linger in, in the listener's mind, not just for, for weeks or days, it, hopefully for their entire lives, and when their emotions go a certain way, or when things happen to them in life, they're going to remember a particular song that resonates with them. It's going to become part of how they deal with things. That's what you're aiming for as a as a as a songwriter. You know, you're under no illusion that it's 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 all about holding the attention for three minutes. You know, you've got to do that as well. But I mean, that's not. It's got to be so much more than that. And I and for me, as a Uh, you know, when I'm writing my novels, that still remains like a huge priority. It's not just holding the reader's mind when they're reading the book. The the really elusive thing, which I can't quite, I still can't figure out. How do you, how do you do this? How do you achieve this? So that after they finish your book, you know, people keep playing it and replaying it. It it just haunts and lingers and becomes part of, part of people. And, and when I was trying to write that screenplay for a *Living*, you know, I was trying to do this, exactly the same thing. You know, how do you make, how do you create a movie that's just going to stay with people, not just entertain people for, you know, an hour and forty minutes? Um, yeah, I mean, that's hard enough to do, you know. And I really admire people who can do that. But you know, but he can, he can just, he can create this longevity of experience. You know, that, that seems to me to be a a goal worth you know reaching for,
0: and and it certainly you know, you were I know greatly impacted as I think you said twelve or thirteen year old watching, Akira on British TV as a young Japanese born boy, uh, obviously it, it haunted you uh, to some in some way all these years leading up to living. But I before we even talk about you starting to write fiction. I believe this year marks 50 years since you took a trip to this country and came back to England. It seems like a changed person and actually somebody who was now for the first time writing fiction in a in a deliberate, serious way, you know, not just a school assignment or something, but because you wanted to do it. Did, is that just a coincidence or had something happened while you were abroad?
1: Um, yeah, it's, it's not quite quite be 50 years. It's 1974. Ah, almost. <laughs> okay. When well, I did, I, I spent three months um, being a hitchhiker, <laughs> and 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 even a, like a a freight train hopper <laughs> <laughs> at one point, <laughs> because uh, in the state of Washington you're not allowed to hitchhike. So um, <laughs> I decided to ride a freight and. Uh, 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 to Minnesota. But, um, but but I mean, it, you know, I, I don't recommend that. It's a very <laughs> dangerous thing to do. <laughs> but um, no, I was, you know, I was growing up, I was 19. Um, uh, it, it's, I guess, you know, like a lot of people of my generation, you know, we were influenced by things like On the Road by Jack Kerouac, and a and lot of the kind of the, the hippie books that people carried, at the time, you know something called the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, you know and things like this. and you know, so I I came back and I started to to write kind of hippie hippie esque on the road type type stories. You know, they they were quite autobiographical about my experiences, um, but it got me into sitting down in front of a typewriter. In those days, it was a typewriter. It made a lot of noise, <laughs> and 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 you know. Just sitting down and writing, um, and they were just—I guess—I was writing up certain things that had happened to me, um, m- mainly in California. Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time on the West Coast, and um, I was hitchhiking up and down Highway One. You know, uh, as, as one does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and you were also—was it during that trip or or shortly thereafter? I know you said you really now seriously got into reading, and particularly, I guess, 19th century um, authors. And, And I just want to quote back before you answer this, something that I thought was a very... Fascinating quote that you had said, quote, I have these two godlike figures in my reading experience, Chekhov and Dostoevsky. So far in my writing career, I've aspired more to the Chekhov, the spare and the precise, the carefully controlled tone. But I do sometimes envy the utter mess, the chaos of Dostoevsky, uh, close quote. Now, those guys, others, you were discovering them around that same time as well, right?
1: Yes, but those two do remain actually very important people for me
0: and i and as that quote
1: suggests they represent for me kind of two different approaches and I, I can feel those approaches inside me you know there's a part of me that that wants to be you know spare and controlled and produce something that's kind of like beautifully realized you know and beautifully shaped but there's a part other part of me that thinks well actually you know we it, it, Maybe it's not right to always be this controlled and this carefully presented. In order to create something really interesting, you've got to actually get past your own defenses. And in order to do that, it's sometimes at the cost of being totally messy. You know, and, and uh, some of Dostoevsky's stuff is, is is a total mess. You know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know who his editor was, but he it allows him to to get to places that I think other people can't get to. You know, Tolstoy can't get anywhere near that territory. Yeah, you know, If you're comparing Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, you know, the big Russians, I mean, and some of Dostoevsky is very dark. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it, 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 some of it's great fun. You know, I think Lieutenant Colombo, by the way, he, he's ripped out of Crime and Punishment no there's a kind of detective who 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 hounds Raskolnikov in the last third of that book who's exactly like lieutenant Colombo yeah i mean it, it, it's he he's far more readable than people think you know um um it's partly because he's got s- such a long name that people think oh, i intimidated by that.
0: <laughs> well, so having quickly it sounds like really done a uh, or begun to do your deep dive into um, you know, great authors of, of the past, you go off to university, you uh, it, afterwards, and I guess even in between, to some extent, I think we're working on social uh, causes, including homelessness in in the UK. But then there's this MA course for creative writing that it sounds like completely changed your life, uh, and led to the beginning of actually being able to do this professionally. And I just wonder, it sounds like it was almost a freak accident that it ever happened. It didn't happen. The, that course wasn't available. It sounds like the year before maybe wasn't available the year after there's only six of you the year that you did it. And yet it changed everything, right? So what, what led you to sign up for it and and what did happen to you during that time?
1: Well, this this was 1979, and I have to say, in 1979, in in Britain, people did not respect the idea of a creative writing course at a university. Yeah, you know, I mean, in fact, in, in, in most of Europe now, people don't really buy that idea. Uh, people, but you know, it was it would have been seen as something very odd and very American, you know, something that Americans did in, in, in their universities. But, you know, uh, you know, the English would know, think, oh, no, no, we can't have such, such a thing in our, in our <laughs> universities. Um, but um, a very well-known writer of that time uh, and, a, and a great academic, Malcolm Bradbury, had been at Iowa and looked at uh, the course there and he visited other American institutions teaching creative writing, and he had this idea, you know, this radical idea, how how about introducing creative writing, some kind of creative writing course in Britain? Now, I I too, I have to say, I shared the the common view that that this is a crazy thing to study at the postgraduate level, but um, it just seemed to me like uh, not very much work. (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I mean, in those days, you know, you could get a government grant if you had your first degree was good enough. You know, um, to do your postgraduate degree, I fancied going back to university, and I, you know, I, I read their prospectus and it said you had to produce thirty pages of fiction at the end of a year. You know, rather than some kind of learned treatise on on Virginia Woolf or something, you know. <laughs> and so I, I, well, well, this this is there's you know, no brainer. I'll sign up for this. And and I was slightly startled when they accepted me. Um, but anyway, um, uh, so I had to learn to to write fiction really fast. You know, so that summer I I locked myself away in a farmhouse, in the English countryside, and 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 started to write short stories. You know. Um, not the kind of autobiographical Jack Kerrack type stuff. You know, actual fiction, short stories, you know, with with kind of murders and kind of plots and things like this. Um, and I, I think I, you know, just the panic of having to to do this course made me learn how to you know, basic things like first person narrative and unreliable narrators. And uh, and indeed, you know, because I was still writing songs, that that, that whole that whole principle of trying to keep the meaning press down so that it creates a whole tension you yeah. um, but the breakthrough for me in at, at East Anglia was that um, I had a wonderful teacher Angela Carter one of the great novelists uh, and she was like a fabulist you know she wasn't a realist writer and that really opened doors for me you Now you didn't have to be worried all the time by you know is this believable would this happen in real life you know um, Yes, I mean, you know, you could make things believable. You know, you could create an alternative set of rules about what was probable and improbable. Um, So that was a breakthrough. But the big breakthrough for me—that's when I started to write about Japan. Um, Because until then, I hadn't—you know—it hadn't occurred to me to, to write about Japan. But that's when things like movies by Ozu and Kurosawa became very important to me. This is all when I'm in my... I'm talking about when I'm 24, 25. And and there was a kind of a... I took on a kind of a project at that point to try and preserve on paper a kind of a Japan that had built up in my imagination as I was growing up. Because I realized that that Japan that I had always thought about as I was growing up the Japan I thought I was going to eventually return to didn't exist. You know, it partly didn't exist because it was just a thing in my head, but also it didn't exist because time had gone on. And, you know, the Japan that I had left had changed, you know. Um, and, I, and the other big thing I realized was that that Japan that was so precious to me was actually fading from my memory with each year that I got older. And so I think I really wanted to nail it in fiction and this comes back to what I was saying earlier. You know, for me, my big drive in in, in in getting involved in any kind of fictional activity is to try and create worlds, to, to invent them, but not in, you know, to, to nail it. You know, so and I think it's a kind of almost like a act of preservation. So I can say, look, you know, it's not fragile anymore. It's there in, inside the book or inside the story. You can go there, and you can you can, you can. Experience what it's like—the the, the smells, the the way people behave—you know, the the color of the sky. I mean, it's it's all there, you know. And I can move on. And so, I, so for me, that that project of trying to nail Japan before it disappeared from my head—and um, a very precious Japan it was as well—you know—was a matter of urgency. And I think you know, that that's what gave me a, a big incentive to 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 write those novels.
0: Well, and it's it's just to connect those dots though from that ma course i guess you're you you at at some point submit some short stories three short stories to the publishing house that you would later work with for years um you they want to know if you have anything else you turn over this thesis that you've been work or dissertation that you've been working on which was I guess an early version of A Pale View of Hills but at that point when you first presented that to them I don't think it was was it already set in Japan or did that change happen afterwards and if so why? Oh
1: yeah when I approached my I mean basically it's, it's like a lot of these things I, I I spent a lot of time banging on the door of kind of recording companies. <laughs> And, and, you know, ANR guys, you know, uh, saying, look, I'm I, I'm the new kind of Japanese English Dylan, you know, <laughs> and, and nothing nothing budged. Right. But for some reason, when I, as soon as I started to write stories uh, while I was at East Anglia during the, the kind of the, the nine months or 10 months I spent there, whenever I sent them off, somebody would want to publish them, you know, like a magazine or whatever. And so these doors opened. And as you say, I mean, not only the literary magazines accept my stories um, Faber and Faber who are still my British publishers one, one of the really great uh, publishing houses you know um, used to be run by T.S. Eliot I mean he, he was the boss at one point um, um, they said oh you know we, we'll publish these stories in a new writer's anthology and would like to know what what you whether you've got a novel and indeed I did I was writing A Paleview of Hills yeah Um and so no it didn't change. I I just I just sent them the beginning of a pale of hills and they they gave me a contract. And they said look when you when you when you no longer officially doing this MA, you know, here's a little bit of money. And it was a pathetic piece a bit of money, but it was enough for me, you know, <laughs> right. to 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 spend another year and um, uh, and finish this book. And so, you know, it, it was a fantastic thing for them to do. You know, for an untested writer, but I mean, they liked the beginning of the of the book sufficiently to to do this, and um, so I kind of had a writing career, um, and so I, I yeah, I, I became a kind of full time writer relatively quickly because not only did that book come out and do well for for a first novel, you know, it was published in the United States and in other languages but also i was asked to write uh, for uh, television around that time and that that's my first experience of writing scripts so I, I, I did a i did two dramas for tv british tv
0: and not to jump ahead of ourselves too much but because the the first two novels 82 pale view of hills 86 an artist of the floating world but of course 89 is remains of the day and i have to ask you it's it's can't be a coincidence Can it that one of those only two teleplays that you had done the uh, profile, a profile of Arthur J. Manson also happened to deal with a butler?
1: Well yeah, yeah. I'm amazed that you've done this research. <laughs> I've done so many interviews <laughs> in the last two years. You know, when I published my last book. I mean, nobody knows about <laughs> things like the profile of Arthur James. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm amazed and slightly embarrassed, but but yeah, this was a this was something that went out on British TV. Uh I think it's about fifty minutes long or something like this. And indeed it it, it it's about an English butler. And this was, it's not exactly a dry run for The Remains of the Day, but, I mean, this was the start of my, this was the first evidence of my uh, obsession around that time with the English butler and and that kind of slightly comical, absurd Englishness.
0: Only, Only want to mention that when you say it was your first encounter with that topic, I guess, I'm trying to think chronologically, but I read about why were you at Balmoral and were you encountering Stephen versions of Stevens there?
1: Oh, no, that, that, that's, I mean, people often try to equate that. No, I didn't actually, Yeah, you know, this is way back. This is um, just after I left my school, before I went to, to university, um, I, I did a summer job as a, as a grouse beater for the then queen mother, um, you know, the the mother the mother of uh, the, um, the late uh, Queen Elizabeth um, and yeah this is up up in Scotland at Balmoral where where you know I was one of the one of the kind of the, the servants if you like who 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 tramped through the heather um, whether it's pouring with rain or whether it's muddy or whether there's a bog in front of you 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 keep in formation you tramp through the leather a heather so um to to get the grouse to to hop on ahead so that you know the guys at the gun butts can shoot them all down um yeah <laughs> but uh yeah that was it, it was all part of that strange year it's the same year that i was hitchhiking a, a, across america you know within the within a few weeks i went from uh you know cocktail parties given by the Queen Mother in Balmoral Castle uh, to, to living in night shelters in, <laughs> on the West Coast, <laughs> you know, in, in, in San Francisco, you know, uh, uh, Tenderloin or whatever. I mean, it, it, was, it was a weird year, but, I mean, that's what you do in 19 years old.
0: <laughs> well, so then flashing clashing back forward to when you're working on The Remains of the Day as a, as a novel or, or contemplating, rather, how you follow your first two novels the idea of actually writing about a butler um, maybe this is this is uh, bs that's out on the internet and i'm sure there's there's some of that but i heard that there was also uh, just in terms of a confluence of all these things that we're talking about did your your you're suddenly people are wanting to interview you you're now a successful acclaimed author a- after these first two and your wife says there's a joke, uh, we should play a joke on an interviewer.
1: Actually, the Arthur Mason thing that you talked about, yeah, but yeah. The, the TV play, the, it did come out of just just what well. I, I, I'm. I, I'm astonished, but at the at the <laughs> <laughs> at the level, I, I'm tempted to say the depth of this research that you've done. <laughs> but yes, indeed, um, uh, it was still relatively novel for us that you know uh, so, some journalists would want to come and interview me, and we were living in our. Kind of fairly modest flat that we had in West London at the time, and and it seemed almost surreal that that people would come and you know want to do a solemn you know interview with me, uh, treating me as though I, I was some kind of serious artist. And, and my, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, um, she said, um, she came up with this idea. She said, why don't we pretend that you, you know, you're my butler? <laughs> and we'll keep interrupting <laughs> the interview because I, I'll keep saying, now you must go and prepare, prepare some tea for me or you know, <laughs> clean, the, <laughs> clean the lobby. <laughs> and I'll say, yes, ma'am. And I'll say, so, so we're, we're planning this. And that that actually is what th- that TV show, the, you know, the, the TV play is actually about. It's about a, it's about an English butler working for some kind of rich guy in an English house. And he's, he wrote a novel many years ago, and it gets found and published, and people acclaim him as this great author. But now he's this kind of person in late middle age, and he's been a butler for 30 years. Uh, and and a TV crew come to interview him, but you know he he has to keep going off to do do whatever <laughs> his butting duties. <laughs> so it was it was that, yeah. I mean, it's very strange I, to to find myself <laughs> recounting this.
0: <laughs> I love it. It's hilarious. But
1: that was but that's what that uh, television program was, and um, uh, and it did it did kind of lead to the remains of the day because uh, you know when I started to think about the butler figure. I could see all kinds of layers to it, you know. You know, you stop, you stop thinking of the butler as a comic stereotype, and you start thinking of the butler, the English butler, almost as a kind of a metaphor for for all of us, for humankind. You know, I start to think, well, in some kind of way, at some metaphorical level, we're all butlers. You know, we're, we're trying, we try to, we try to be dignified, we try to do our jobs. We try. We care a lot. Some of us, you know, about the contribution we make, but we're not quite sure how our contribution is going to be used. You know, there's there's somebody upstairs telling us to do this, telling us to do that, um, and we we go around trying to look very kind of dignified while we do it. <laughs> Which, by <laughs> I mean, the way, comic,
0: I, I must say, comes back to you. You could be describing living. I mean, uh, y- yeah, you're right. Yes, yes. I mean, <laughs> there's a big i guess there's a big overlap between
1: the remains of the day and and living
0: and and i mean that only in the in the best way but i mean but you've actually it's interesting because after these first three novels when everyone can't get enough of of it at that point you were i i don't know if it's self-doubt that was creeping in but i'm going to read you back one other quote that you <laughs> have said variations of actually, quote, I've written the same book three times. I just somehow got away with it. close quote or quote. You could say I'd rewritten the same novel three times and I thought I had to move on uh, the success of the book. And then the movie had by then created a commercial explet- expectation, expectation, da, da, da. Anyway, I, 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 I think that, you know, that's pretty, it, it, you certainly didn't just rewrite the same uh, book. These are all, all excellent in their own ways. But what's interesting is that there are certain themes, though, that obviously it's I can't imagine it's coincidental that they they mean something to you, whether it's this uh, repression of emotions that we see with Stevens all the way through uh, the character and living or, you know, just uh, and again, crossing crossing uh, continents. Right. You've you've talked about that. Maybe there is for very different reasons um, a similar idea about, in both Britain and Japanese society, the importance of, I guess, restraint, right? For Comes for different reasons, but you've, you've picked up on it and, and seem to be pretty fascinated by it.
1: Yes, I am fascinated by that. Um, but I, I guess fairly rapidly, I I was trying to make it, I was, I was, tr- I was trying to ask people to consider it as a universal aspect of human nature I you know I wasn't saying look if you have a peculiar interest in English people of a certain generation you know you might be interested in the story or in Japanese people of a certain generation Um, you know by by looking at these kinds of figures I I guess I was saying look, do you recognize something here yeah at first glance they might look like really comic weird creatures from another planet you know but the more you spend time with them, don't you start to think there's something you recognise here? You know, does, does something ring a bell here? I, I guess that's my strategy in all of these things. And when you look at different societies, I mean, yes, you know, on the surface, America seems to have a very different attitude towards emotions, particularly, you know, let's say late twentieth century. 21st century America that you know, everybody appears to be kind of openly expressing their their kind of you know whatever they said to their therapist last week and so <laughs> on it's that kind of culture, but that in itself can be a kind of a strategy as we know of, of building some kind of shield behind which you can hide. You know we all human beings we all fear emotions, well at least let's say we 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 fear the that arena where we are asked to expose our emotions. So that, that's what I should say, because that's where we can really get hurt. But nevertheless, we've got to go there if, if we're going to live some kind of meaningful life. You know, so so it's, it's a scary process. You know, so, so I, so I guess I'm interested in that. And and you know I think I think American culture has its versions of the stiff upper lip Englishman. I mean the kind of character that John Wayne played. Yes. For years. It's kind of silent American type. version yeah, of that. Right. Yeah. Mm yeah you know, I mean you know he he he's not going to spit out over the edge you know to, to talking about how, how bad he felt about his divorce you know right. we're, we're in a saloon <laughs> you know you, <laughs> i mean he he is very much like he, he's he, he's your kind of western frontier version of that kind of figure it, it often goes with a with a kind of a militaristic culture you know when when people are going through wars um that those kinds of manners do come, you know, do become prioritized because I mean, you need people to 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 button down their emotions, you know, when your society is is at threat and uh, um you you can't have people kind of freaking out everywhere, you know.
0: Well, I wonder if though, is that why when you came to America, maybe you're not going to Atlantic City, you're not going to Miami, you went to the American West. I guess
1: so, but I, I was I was fascinated by I suppose I mean in those days you know in the 1970s you know California San Francisco uh, for a young person these were exciting places. I mean people often said to me well, why, why don't you go back to Japan? You've never been to Japan, you know. Uh, you've grown up and you've know, never been back to the country of your birth. I still had a Japanese passport in those days, but you know I longed to. I longed to be in San Francisco and, and places like that, you know, um, uh, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to go walk into a city, sit down in some park with other people with long hair like me and we'll swap songs on, on the guitar. That, that, that's, that was my dream. Interesting.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Well, just because you've done so much uh, great work, we don't have enough time to talk in depth about everything. But I just want to briefly, just as we make our way to the present, if I can just ask you a little bit about, you know, just maybe one quick thing about a few of these other major milestones along the way, because after you've had this, the, you know, the height of success at that time, after the remains of the day sells over a million copies in English, Booker Prize optioning of the film rights, which, of course, ultimately results in that uh, excellent film of the same name, being a a much more recognized person, all of this, you then go and make and write what is today maybe more widely regarded as an excellent work. But you took a lot of uh, flack from some in some circles at the time for your follow up to The Remains of the Day, The Unconsoled, which was just Uh, it was six years later, 1995, there's some thought maybe this was a book that was shaped by the fact that you were going through all of these changes in your own life of, you know, being um, under the public, in the public eye to some degree uh, more. Anyway, I guess I just wonder, was this the result of you saying, you know, those doubts that I quoted back to you or not doubts, but sense that you'd done something similar the first Three times. Now you're gonna just, or, or to kind of go to your own, the closest thing from going from Chekhov to Dostoevsky. It feels like might be the unconsoled.
1: Oh yeah, I think I think it, I was, I was trying to move towards the Dostoevsky side, but I, I was really interested in people like Kafka, also. You know, I was interested in dream language, and creating a dream world. But this business about you know writing the same book three times. I mean, I, I, I often say this in r- slightly apologetically in interviews, but actually I'm kind of proud of it. You know, I, I think it's, I not only think it's all right to, to be writing the same book three times. I, I th- kind of think that's what serious people should be doing. They should they should keep returning to a certain terrain. You know, um, now of course, you know, you don't want to get repetitive. I mean, it becomes self-indulgent if you keep doing the same things just for the sake of doing the same things. But if you feel that you have closed in on some area with your work, you know, but you haven't quite nailed it and you, you've learned something in, in creating something and you've learned new things. Then I think the correct thing to do is, is to go over that terrain again. And this time maybe you'll close in even more. And I I tell you that, I mean, many of the, the writers and the filmmakers that I really admire I think they do this. They they do go over and over things. I mean, there'll be there'll be surface differences in their stories, but I mean, one of my great favorite filmmakers is Ozu, and um, um you know, he he goes over and over. I mean, sometimes it does feel repetitive, but you know, I I could watch all of those films over and over again. It's you know, he,
0: sort of the auteur theory, right? Is that you are to some degree doing a version of the same. Thing. It's not a bad thing.
1: Exactly, exactly, and and it's. It, I don't think that means that your oeuvre becomes boring, mm-hmm. because if it's if that journey is being undertaken authentically, then it should be an interesting journey. You know, each thing, each new thing should be a progression on on the last one. Uh, and so i i find I find the careers of filmmakers and authors really fascinating when there is a proper journey totally and and for a proper journey to exist, there has to be something underneath the stories and the events being being narrated that that I feel is is authentically an obsession or that this is the terrain that the that the artist is mining over and over again you know they're they're digging around. A, a patch of ground. It, it's almost like you know, they, they're convinced there's something very important buried somewhere, but they haven't quite found it. So they keep digging and digging and digging. And you know what we're following are these kind of holes that they keep digging.
0: Not to not to overanalyze, but maybe the next one when we were orphans two thousand is in a way okay. So an English an Englishman wants to find out what happened to his parents, right? and goes back to a foreign land where they were from where they went missing is that not uh, in some way and especially because i think you've talked about 1930 shanghai having a uh, having a personal connection to that might there be a parallel there for you know your own excavation of your parents lives from before
1: yeah i think that that that's that's pretty fair my my father was born in Shanghai uh, and you know he, he and his father my grandfather um, uh, they they were industrial my, my grandfather was was actually he ran Toyota in in Shanghai at the time Toyota not being a car company in those days it, it was a textiles company um, and so um, the Shanghai of the 1930s it was just a wild and interesting and fascinating multi multicultural international city um, it's a place that's always captured my imagination and so that part of part of me just wanted to to enter that world fictionally but also there is something in what you say I think it's um, uh, it's not it's not a, really about a, a person who's literally an orf- orphan but yes his parents have disappeared and he he becomes a detective and he, he thinks he can he can solve the big mystery in his life which is to to find out what happened to his parents going back to, uh, and he returns to Shanghai you know, in adulthood to try and find out what happened to his missing parents. Um, but but that, that, that novel, I always feel is, is I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's the, it's the one novel of mine that I don't feel a great deal of affection for. I mean, I, I probably do, but I, I kind of feel it's, it's the one novel that perhaps I was too self-conscious about. It's too overtly, um about those themes you know and, and and I think in a way I work better when there isn't such a confluence between my autobiography and and the actual story that's on the surface uh, that's just the way I am I think um, th- that's a paradox because you know, there there are many many storytellers that I deeply admire who 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 create you know thinly disguised autobiographies you know um in fact, at the moment, there's been a whole wave of um, films uh, made by, you know, Spielberg or yes. Sorrentino or Corrone um, yeah, yeah,
0: James Gray, yeah. They are
1: clearly autobiographical films, and I, and I admire those films. I, I, I think The Fable, Fablements is a wonderful film. <clears throat> but that I can't do that kind of thing. When I attempt anything that becomes too literally close to to some something I'm trying to address I feel I don't do it as well yeah you know, um, I have to do everything through some kind of refracted uh, kind of mirror well, uh, it also
0: know. though seems that you're not I mean yes we will see and we can conclude obviously the the first three are set around the time of World War two uh never let me go which was next in 2005 was it says 1990s England but for the most part I, I think that other than when we were orphans, you've kind of said, it's not that you ever set out aside from that time with that one to tailor a story to a specific time and place, right? Eventually it finds out where it needs to, to be. But, um, but anyway, let me, let me ask you something better about never let me go. Cause I know we got it. We're running short on time and I want to make sure to do justice as much as I can to, to these. But again, um, the, th- if there's a thread, Kathy, unlike Stevens and Ono, isn't des- deceiving herself about the past, but she's in some ways deceiving herself about the future. So again, I guess we can say self-deception comes into play. When you, I, I, I don't know much about the process of if you're sitting down and outlining or or how you how you actually end up with the stories that you do, but do you find yourself only recognizing something like that, that there might be a thread there uh, when it's kind of progressed? Or is that a deliberate, you know, let's see how we can apply or employ self-deception for a character uh, like Kathy, as you're designing the story. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it makes, absolutely makes sense. I mean, I, I, Scott, I don't, you know, I would love to have like, um, a set of kind of working principles that I've settled down to, you know, but I, but every time I finish something, I, I kind of feel the way I went about it wasn't quite ideal. And so next time I do it a different way. You know, Never Let Me Go is one of the few times when I, I just wrote the entire thing in rough all the way to the end and then went back and did another draft. You know, usually I, I go much more cautiously. I, I do about thirty pages, and I draft and draft and draft until it's almost like a presentable, publishable piece of work, and then I write the next hunk. You yeah. um, know, uh, and I've, I've, I've usually found that the better way to go about things. But so, in the case of Never Let Me Go, I, th- I think, I think, I, you know, I did actually know quite a lot of what was going to happen. Um, I always know where I want to land at the end. For me, it's always important to know the ending. Maybe not all the details about, you know, what kind of room it's going to happen in, or exactly what is said, but I do want to know what I'm aiming for in terms of the emotion. You know, it's often quite a complex emotion. I, I want the whole thing to land on. You know, I, I don't want it just to be oh, terribly sad, you know, or, or oh, it's terribly. Beach. I want it to be some very complicated blend. And so, so that's what I'm aiming for. I mean, you know, there are a number of threads that I developed through the work with the, with the goal of having them all meet emotionally and just end on this note. It, it kind of goes back to the, the songwriting thing again. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, want, I want it to all finish on some kind of, in some kind of place that's going to really haunt people. Um, so it must it mustn't be too resolved either, you know. Um, and so I, I usually have a very clear view. I can't really start writing these things until I have a very clear view of where I want to land. Now, now the route. I mean, yeah, you you can you can have fun experimenting with lots of different routes, and and you know some things just don't work out. So you say, well, forget that. And, but but you you know I I feel. I, I do need to know what I'm aiming for. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to just go out there in the dark to see where I go. You know, um, I can't do that.
0: Well, just the, if ever, not, not that it's in any way the only example of this, but the haunting, I don't think there's anything that's more haunting of what you've done, at least for me, than never let me go. And I guess the, the, the question that I and some others have had, which then I guess you've sort of actually addressed maybe in some of these conversations about living you know, some people say, all right, well, when you learn that you are facing the end, maybe sooner than others, in the case of Never Let Me Go, do you, why don't you try to fight back? Why don't you try to escape? Why don't you try to get out of it? And your response, I've found, without totally preempting it here, is is pretty fascinating that it's like, you know, it's actually in in a way, the way we all handle Difficult things like that, right? I guess no, maybe their circumstances are different, and we're not directly dealing with clones or whatever it may be. But the answer to that question, which I don't think I'm the only one who, you know, ponders it, is I should let you answer. I should let you finish, not answer, but uh, that that thought.
1: Yeah, well, that, 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 I guess there's two different things you're raising there. I mean, one is this question: in in, in a story like Never Let Me Go, you, you're presenting people who. It becomes obvious that they—they're they're a very oppressed and exploited class. You know, they're basically a, a group of people who—who who are raised just to be organ donors, and and, and then they'll, they'll just get sick and die by the time they're in their thirties. So why don't they push back? You know, um, uh, that I think that's a, I, I, I think it's quite a for me, it's quite a satisfying sense of frustration uh, that's been created. In the audience or the or the readers, when they feel that you know, what what why the hell don't why do they put up with this? What you know, um, but I guess I'm kind of saying, well, all right, particularly in in the movies and probably in fiction in general, there's a very high percentage of cases where people push back in those situations, but in life, it's it's in reality it's a much much lower percentage. You know, most people they. They have a weird capacity to accept their fate. They stay in bad marriages. They stay in terrible jobs. You know, they're told to go and fight in some war. They 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 don't understand, and they they know that they're going to be miserable and that most of them will get killed. But they do it. You know, th- this is this is part of how we have lived, um, and it's it's often because you know. We live in small worlds, peculiarly small worlds, and we don't get the perspective. We don't have the perspective to push back. I mean, it's almost meaningless to say to people, you know, push back. Um, And this is part of the human condition. And 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 in never let me. So so that's that's part of my answer. You know why why write a story about people who just accept such a fate? But the other part of the answer is because. And and I guess this is the more maybe a more honest answer. You know, in 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 a story like Never Let Me Go, I'm I'm talking about mortality. You know, it's you know I'm writing a story about what what you know about the fact that look. As human beings, we have finite lives. At some point, we, we're going to get ill, and then we're going to die. Um, now, we don't have to kind of wallow in that knowledge. But, you know, in in a book like Never Let Me Go, I wanted to create a situation where where we look at that afresh. You know, like, this is something that we know so well that we don't look at it. Uh, but if you create a weird situation where a bunch of people seem to suffer this strange plight, then I th- I thought maybe it'll be like seeing yourself in a strange mirror. You know, Absolutely. you think, oh, what, you know, what, what, you know, this is a tragedy, you know, it's terrible. And then you start to think, well, actually, this is, this is what we're, <laughs> this is a situation we're all in. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so the big question isn't so much for me, you know, why don't they fight back? It's, you know, when, when it's inevitable, when death is inevitable, how do you face it? What is really important? You know what do you need to what do you need to sort out when you know your time is limited? Uh, so that's what never let me go is really about. And and you know I wanted to say to people, look, doesn't it make sense that what's important isn't necessarily career or material things when you when you're in that situation? It's it's the people you love. And and if you you think you've done something really wrong to somebody who's close to you. You you want to, you want to at least apologize before it's too late, you know, and do your best to set things right. So that's what happens in, in Never Let Me Go,
0: and in, in know, the, and, so, yeah. and in the final one that I will, I hate to, I hate to give short shrift to the Barry Giant twenty fifteen and Clara and the Sun twenty twenty one. But we are, I know, just it actually works perfectly with looking at this is again living. It's not, it's a called living. It's, it's, I guess, again, how we, how we face mortality and, uh, and how, um, how that transfers from Japan of, of the original film to, to the England of your childhood in a way, right. Of, of being around guys like, like this. And I, I guess I just wonder because it's a, you've done screenplays, We talked about the teleplay that you did or teleplays that you did early on. You've done the White Countess with Merchant and Ivory, who had done Remains of the Day. You've done other things. But um, of this one, you said, quote, I'm almost as proud of this as anything I've ever done, close quote. And when you've done as many great things as you've done, I, I have to ask what it is. Is it just that it's such a is it a very different it's a very different art form to be writing a screenplay versus a novel or is the process if you could compare and contrast just because it obviously meant a lot to you to go and revisit this story and and and, and do it in a way that you haven't told a story for many years
1: well it it's it, it's not simply that the japanese movie kurosawa's movie ikiru of uh, resonated with me because it it's close to to my own writing. I I think it's no exaggeration to say that my writing is the way it is because of the influence of Ikiru from, from when I was a boy. You know, I think that movie had some sort of, it contributed to the way I saw the world. And, and that's why my, my novels are to some extent, that's why my novels are the way they are. Um, uh, And so it's, it's not a coincidence that, that you know, when I come to do uh, a new version of Ikiru, that that it, it seems to fit into into the kind of flow of my my, my previous work, you know, um, uh, that's exactly as as it should be. Um, it it meant a lot to me when I from the time I was you know in my early teens. I mean, I, because in those days I didn't expect to end up you know, like like a a well-known writer. I didn't end up, I I certainly wasn't expecting to win a Nobel Prize. (laughs) You know, I thought I was going to be one, uh, just an ordinary guy. And in those days, I used to go to school on the train, you know, from the age of 11 to the age of 18. Every morning I'll sit at, I'll stand at a railway station and get on a train to go to school. And I would travel with those same guys, those bowler-hatted gentlemen who used to go all the way into London. I would get off two stops Later, but they will they'll go all the way in. And I thought when I left school and I'll go to university and then I'll become one of those people, you know. I, I'll get some kind of job in London. I'll put on a boda hat. <laughs> I'll line up like them because that that's what life seemed to be. I wasn't, you know, and I and so it, it, that that Japanese film Ikiru meant a lot to me because it said you don't have to turn yourself into a superstar. You know, you don't have to do anything incredibly remarkable but it will take some effort but even if you're dealt a hand by life that is quite humble or ordinary maybe not very exciting nevertheless with some effort and imagination you you can still t- flip that you can turn it into something really meaningful even magnificent you know, just within that little world that that you exist in now that seemed to me a much more inspirational message than something like Christmas Carol, which says, "Look, you know, you're a really shitty person. <laughs> you're, you're overnight, change yourself into the opposite. Right. <laughs> that, that's quite hard to do, right? Right? Well, and and it's it's, it's it's in some ways it's even I think it's it's it's, it's more inspiring than than the wonderful yeah you know, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful life you know which is a great film. But it, I think it, at the heart of it it, it, it tells a little fib. It says, you know, you might think your life is just meaningless, but actually you've been doing wonderful things without knowing it all the time. Well, maybe that is the case for some people, but for a lot of people it is. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't been doing wonderful things. Right, right, <laughs> inadvertently right. At all, you know. Uh, you know. They've probably been doing sort of bad things to people, you know, without knowing. Uh, so, uh, so that's kind of, at, at best, optimistic, you know. Um, but this idea that the kurosawa film presented to me well, was an important one. That it will take effort, but it is possible. Whatever kind of life you've got, however small it is, just look at it and see what you can do. And you and just the effort you make to try and turn it into something that, in itself, makes your life something meaningful. You know? And you'd you'd have spent your time on earth. In in a good way, and that that seemed to that that really gave me some hope, you know. Um, and so, this late in my life, yes, with with all these unexpected honors showered on me, you know, um, it still means something to me. And and I, I still think there is something about that the, the idea that success and lo- success and failure is ultimately a very lonely thing. You know, you got to have your own sense of success and failure. And I think the way the carousel film ends and the way our film ends, for me, it's a really important thing. A man who is really content and happy, but he's entirely lonely and alone in appreciating it. Because I, I think that, you know, there is something very profoundly true about that, I think.
0: Well, it's a beautiful tribute to both the original work that inspired it and I think to to anyone who has been paying attention to to your work along the way where you'll notice the, and people should go back and maybe watch them uh, as a double header because many of the beautiful things are, are there in now in England, but also there is your touch, whether it's the different songs or the, the, that, that center in the movies, or I think maybe most poetically the way that he receives the, Bad news that he receives, which people want to talk about Ishiguro economy, that where you could say a lot with a very little, I think quite is, is a, a way to do that. But anyway, I've taken enough of your time. I'm so appreciative that you took the time to do this. And uh, thank you for all the beautiful work. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, and thank you, Scott, for having me on. And thank you for this incredible sometimes embarrassingly deep research you've done into my,
0: into my past works. <laughs> it's a pleasure. And, uh, and I can't wait to see what's next. So thank you again. Thank you. Great pleasure. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app. And to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.